Hello, everyone. We hope that all of you are keeping well and staying safe wherever in the world you are. Welcome to this special event on COVID-19, Emerging Problems and Potential Country Responses. This is the second in our COVID-19 event series. I'm Rajal Pandya-Loach, Director of Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI, and I'll be moderating the event today. COVID-19 is creating a range of new challenges for economic growth and social well-being. IFPRI's experts look at what to expect and how developing countries can respond in ways that promote food security, nutrition, and greater equity. Thank you for joining us at this special virtual event on COVID-19, and thank you to those of you who are watching the recording after the event. We are eager to hear from you and to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations, please submit your questions during the chat box. You can also follow the conversation on Twitter at hashtag IFPRILive, and you can post questions on Twitter during the Q&A by using the hashtag AskIFPRI. And for our friends from the media, if you have any specific questions, please feel free to contact our media team. Their contact details are available on ifpri.org. We have an exciting program lined up for you. And without further ado, I'd like to call on IFPRI's Director General, Yo Swinnan, to present a brief introduction. Over to you, Yo. Thank you. Thank you very much, Raju. Um, hello, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to IFRI's second COVID event. Uh, we are very excited to welcome you again. We have a very good panel uh, together, uh, all experienced people who have interesting insights to share with you. As the pandemic spreads and its impact lasts, we start to learn more about both the disease and about the policy responses. We know, for example, that the impact is potentially huge. If we don't do anything, about it or don't do a massive amount of uh, policy interventions, it could even be, as some has said, biblical. Our own estimates at IFPRI point at an order of 100 to 150 million people who could fall back into extreme poverty and malnutrition, wiping out uh, several years of progress we made over the past decade. We also know that the impact is heterogeneous. It's different for different commodities, different, different sectors, for countries, and for social groups within uh, countries. These differences are not random. So we have learned now that they relate to the characteristics of the commodities, to the nature of the supply chains and the food systems, and to whether you are rich or poor. Even among the poor, there are important differences in how you are affected. It depends whether you live in the city or in the countryside, whether you're a smallholder farmer or a landless worker, whether you are a migrant worker or a locally employed person, when you're a man or a woman. All these things matter. To provide you with more insights on this, we have a panel of five speakers today, and so they together will discuss insights on these different mechanisms, these different effects, and different sectors. Okay, some will talk about migration and remittances, about food supply chains, about gender issues, about trade, about policy responses. They will cover different countries, two from Africa, uh, Egypt, and uh, Ethiopia, and there will be some general African issues on, on trade effects and there will be a presentation on Asia as well and policy responses there and more generally. They will also use different methodologies. Some will, the analysis will be based on models, on country models, some on surveys, and some of different ways of collecting information in these COVID uh, times. So with that, I'm gonna turn uh, 
back to you, Rachel, so you can introduce the panel. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Yo. Thank you for setting the stage for our event today. Let me call then on our first speaker, and that is Clemens Breisinger. Clemens is Senior Research Fellow and Program Leader for IFPRI's Country Strategy Support Program for Egypt. He will share insights on COVID-19 and the economic impact on Egypt. Over to you, Clemens. Thank you. It's indeed very safe to say that every country in the world is now impacted by COVID-19. Like you just mentioned, these impacts differ from country to country. And this is why IFPRI's economy-wide modeling team is conducting COVID-19 impact assessment. Main questions in these studies is how the global pandemic is likely to impact domestic economies, the food system, jobs and households. Today I'm going to present to you our case study for Egypt that IFPRI is conducting with the Egyptian Center for Economic Studies and with inputs from the Ministry of Planning here in Cairo. Our results suggest that Egypt is weathering the global storm relatively well and that can be explained by the country's relatively strong macroeconomic position and early domestic response to the global health crisis and significant measures that have, put, that have been put in place to strike a balance between health and economic consideration. Next slide, please. So this graph shows you our underlying conceptual framework for all the country level studies. Basically, there are external and domestic impact channels. For the external impact channels, think of exports like goods, but also services like tourism, and remittances. They are all very country specific, but they are also household specific. So it's important to take country specific um, channels into account. And then there are domestic impact channels and they depend on how partial or full lockdowns are affecting different sectors. These domestic impacts are often negative. Think of restaurants closed, factories closed, but sometimes they can be positive. Think of internet services, health product providers, etc. So for each country, we first analyze each of the impact channels in collaboration with our country offices and with local experts. To give you a technical example, if all the hotels are closed, we'll assume a 100% reduction in the hotel sector in our model. Or if a textile factory only works two shifts instead of three, we'll assume a 30% reduction in textile output, etc. All these external and domestic channels together constitute the direct impact. But then there are indirect impacts. Think of restaurants and hotels that now don't demand any food anymore. These so-called multiplier effects we capture by using an economy-wide multiplier model. Now let's take a look at the COVID-19 situation in Egypt before I show you some selected model results. Next slide, please. As you can see, Egypt has reacted relatively early around mid-March to the global pandemic, including suspension of flights, closure of schools, followed by nighttime curfews and other measures to curb the spread of the virus. The government of Egypt has then allocated 100 billion Egyptian pounds, which is about 6.25 billion USD, to combat the global fallout from COVID-19, including support to hard-hit sectors and expanding the social safety net. 
As such, the country is operating now under a slower speed, but has avoided a full lockdown of the economy. But still, external factors combined with the partial lock lockdown is interrupting the strong economic progress that Egypt has made over the past years. Next slide, please. So if we add up the sector level impacts that I was just talking about and their economy-wide multiplier, here's what we get for the period of three months from April to June, assuming the partial lockdown as described before continues for the next two months. Let's look at the economy. We estimate that quarterly GDP in Q4 will be around 18% lower compared to a situation without COVID-19. That's about 15 billion US dollars over three months. This is low by international comparison. Estimates for other countries show projected losses of 30% and higher. We can see that there are large differences across sectors where estimates suggest that services are hardest hit followed by industry. Agriculture seems to be the most resilient sector for now. Projected temporary job losses may reach more than 1 million and the large share of them are occurring in the service sector. Household incomes decline by 14% overall with urban households more affected than rural. Given agriculture's resilience and the higher projected job losses in urban areas and the service sector, that's not a surprise. But the poor are also hard hit, losing between 14 and 17% of their income or $29 to $30 per household every month during the April to June period. What is clear is that without the decisive action that the government of Egypt has taken so far, the losses would likely be much higher. To conclude, this is a dynamic crisis where things change rapidly. We have to constantly revisit our assumptions and will continue to work with our local partners to keep estimates up to date. IFPRI's modeling team is working on similar analysis for more countries. We are also working with our partners around the world on different scenarios of reopening economies and policies and investments for rebuilding sectors and livelihoods for the post-COVID-19 world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Clemens, for sharing the experiences and insights from Egypt. From Egypt, we move now to Ethiopia, and I'd like to call on our next speaker, who is Bart Minton. Bart is, the, is also a senior research fellow with IFPRI and program leader for IFPRI's country strategy support program for Ethiopia. Bart, we look forward to your remarks. Over to you. Good morning and good afternoon. Um, so I'm going to talk about the COVID-19 crisis and agricultural value chains in Ethiopia and Africa and what we're learning currently. So for the COVID-19 uh, uh, cases in Ethiopia, it's currently not that much. So it's less than 150 currently. But the government has taken a number of measures, as, has other, as other countries have done in Africa. Um, so close uh, schools, um, etc. But we have also done a number of measures that are affecting the, the functioning of agricultural value chains. More particularly, they have closed the land borders. They, uh, there are some regional states that also closed the border and have restricted movement in the country. And there are also no meetings allowed of more than four people. So these measures uh, have an uh, impact on your uh, agricultural value chains. And we looked in the case of 
uh, vegetables and dairy value chain to understand a little bit what's going on. We uh, relied on uh, key informant interviews and we are going to uh, do some phone interviews to follow up. But these are the things that we see happening. Uh, downstream and midstream in the value chain in urban areas, we see that consumption of these vegetables and of these dairy products are reduced. This is partly an income effect. People have uh, less money. There's obviously an economic uh, slowdown. Uh, these uh, vegetables and uh, dairy products are considered uh, too expensive for some groups of the population. And so they shift away from, from those foods. But the second effect that is driving that reduction is a number of misconceptions that are there related to the consumption of uh, vegetables and animal sourced foods. Um, so a number of people believe that the consumption of these, these foods is linked to getting the virus. And so they are shifting away from that. So we see a reduction of consumption. We also see linked with that a reduction in trade. There are less truckers and trucks going to uh, rural areas. Uh, they are less willing to go also because they are afraid of getting the virus. And we are seeing that actually compared to the last month, the prices for this local transport cost have gone up with uh, 15%. We also looked at what's happening with urban retail prices. There we don't see a lot of changes yet. They stayed at the level where they were before in real terms. They're going up in nominal terms, but in real terms, we don't see changes happening. With the farmers upstream, we see four major effects happening. The first effect that we see is an effect with the laborers. So there are, uh, in, for, especially in the vegetable sector, is a very labor intensive sector. Uh, a number of these laborers have gone home. They are not willing to work in the sector anymore. And so it's much more difficult to find laborers. Uh, what we also see happening with these laborers is that the wages are going up. The wages have increased from 150 bear per day to 250 bear per day over the last month. That's an increase of about 40%. The second effect that we see happening is that the inputs, getting agricultural inputs is becoming much more uh, problematic. We see that happening for agrochemicals. Agrochemicals often come from China. There have been all these problems in China, so the supply chains have been disrupted a little bit. But there is also the issue of the land borders. So a number of these agrochemicals were actually coming into the country illegally. And so that has been completely closed off. And so uh, you have, there's a hard time for some of these farms to, to find these uh, agrochemicals. Uh, in the dairy sector, we see that the feed prices are going up rapidly. Uh, there are some estimates out there that these prices have increased by about 40%. Then what's happening with the prices at a farm gate? We see that for some of these vegetables, for onions and cabbages, these prices have gone down in a big way. There's excess supply and there's less choice with uh, traders. In the case of milk, we don't see these prices declining yet for those farmers that are able to sell their milk. But a number of these farmers are not able to sell the milk and they start increasingly converting the liquid milk to butter. Uh, 
And so we see in the butter market that these prices are quickly going down. We see, we estimate that these prices are now at 40% the level that they were uh, three years ago in real terms. The fourth thing that we see happening with these farmers is that they have less choice in buyers and some of them complained that they were not able to find any buyer at all. And so they had to leave the backfield over here. In general, we see that there are quite some uh, implications of the COVID-19 crisis in these value chains. So downstream, we see that the consumption of these, uh, of these vegetables and these animal source food products are going down. So uh, often because it's linked to an information problem, so we, we require better information on the sector. Midstream, we see that marketing costs are going up, often linked to increased transportation costs. So we have to make clear to the government that, that that food trade is essential. And then upstream, we don't see directly supply effects because the production was there, but we see uh, major price changes happening in the input markets, in the labor markets, in the feed markets, and also in the output markets. And obviously that will have uh, an effect on, on the future system because these incentives drive what these farmers are going to do in, in the next harvest season. So this requires that this input supply system is made a, a priority by the government. Thank you. Bart, thank you very much for sharing the insights from Ethiopia, the experiences, and also looking forward. We'll continue to stay on in Africa and move to our third speaker, who is Daniel Resnick. Daniel is also a senior research fellow at IFPRI and she will talk about COVID-19 and informal food traders in Africa. Over to you, Danielle. Okay, thanks very much, Rajul. So informal food trade refers to food that is sold in open air or wet markets or by vendors alongside the road and by mobile hawkers. And it's a major component of the agri-food system in Sub-Saharan Africa. It's also a major source of employment for the urban poor in the region, especially for women. Some estimates also suggest that the urban poor access up to 70% of their food from informal food retailers. Unfortunately though, food traders have longstanding contentious relationships with public authorities, and they operate in very dense environments with minimal access to clean water, soap, and waste collection. So while they're very much the lifeline for the urban poor, they're currently quite vulnerable to the spread of the coronavirus and also to volatile government policies. So recognizing this, here at IFPRI, we've been tracking government responses to informal food traders, as well as traders' degree of compliance. And so I want to briefly share with you three overarching uh, findings that we're seeing thus far from this tracking. So point number one is that we're very much seeing a huge diversity in responses to informal food traders. At one end of the spectrum, we're seeing complete closure of food markets. Uh, this includes uh, Zimbabwe, um, in Ouagadougou and Burkina Faso, the mayor closed all open-air food markets for a month. Um, in Kusumu, uh, uh, Kenya's third largest city, the governor closed markets for three weeks. And in Lagos, we saw at least 17 markets closed there. The more common response is to see informal food traders as an essential service, but to have them operate in a substantially modified environment. And the main change here has been decongesting the markets. This has been done in different ways. For example, moving traders into abandoned bus parks, such as we've seen in Kigali. 
Um, in a number of cities, they've simply just removed the non-food traders to create more space. In Ghana, they have alternative products for alternative days so that you don't have as many uh, food traders in the same place at once. In some markets in Dakar, they operate every other day and on the off days, they sanitize the markets. And sanitizing is something we've seen in, in markets in Accra, Kumasi, and Nairobi as well. Besides this decongestion, a major policy has been reducing operating hours. So in Abuja, they can only operate for four hours between 10 and two every day. Um, in a place like Luanda and Angola, they have to close the markets by one o'clock. At the other end of the spectrum, we've seen a number of supportive responses for these traders. Um, a common technique has been on the fiscal side. So we're moving for at least uh, March, April, and through May, the uh, taxes and levies that traders often have to pay to local governments to operate their businesses. Um, we also see in Rwanda, the National Bank has removed the charges on mobile transfers in order to encourage traders to engage in more cashless forms of payment. Uh, we're also seeing on the health side um, in a number of cities, such in Ghana and Senegal, uh, prioritization of distributing masks for traders and installing poly tanks with free potable water so that traders can wash their hands and customers as well. So that's the first major finding is that there's a huge diversity uh, in these responses. Now, the second point complements the first in that there's a, also a huge degree of compliance and enforcement of these measures. And we're seeing this manifest in different ways. So in places where we've had markets closed, we're seeing some traders simply go out into the streets um, and play a cat and mouse game with police. Uh, so in Kusumo, for example, they've set up what are called Corona markets, uh, setting up shop in alleyways in the slums and moving quickly when they hear that the police are in the neighborhood. Another technique has been outright protest, and the most dramatic uh, evidence of this was in Malawi, where on April 17th, across major cities in the country, uh, food traders and others in the informal economy marched and protested against the planned 21-day lockdown, which would have included um, all the central open-air markets. And unfortunately, we are seeing worrying levels of violence against traders who do not comply with these measures. Live bullets, for example, have been fired over the heads of traders in many cities across Uganda, including Kampala, uh, when traders are seen to be disobeying social distancing rules. In Harare, the police have destroyed the stalls of traders in at least five markets where traders violated closure orders. In Monrovia as well, we've seen the police and military destroying stalls as a way of uh, reducing congestion. And we know that such violence is very unlikely to build the necessary political trust we're seeing around the world is very much needed uh, to get societal buy-in to government responses to the pandemic. And this is particularly salient in African cities, which typically are strongholds for opposition parties and where there's already a high degree of mutual distrust between the urban poor and government authorities. And so our third point is that with these different responses, we're also seeing the challenge of institutional coordination, particularly at the city level. Uh, we're seeing that these policies for traders are being made by municipal and metropolitan authorities, by ministries of local government, public health, trade, and commerce, and also by revenue authorities. And this is not unique. Uh, the current responses that we're seeing reflect a long-standing challenge in the region, uh, which is that informal food traders really lack a clear institutional partner with whom to negotiate their rights and responsibilities. 
So to conclude, we're seeing that the pandemic should very much be seen as an opportunity to learn what works and what doesn't, to fight other public health crises in the region that are much more frequent in African cities, such as cholera and typhoid outbreaks that typically are, are blamed on informal traders. And so in the coming weeks, we're gonna to continue to track this diversity of responses for managing informal trade with the aim to identify which of these policies have been most effective for balancing economic livelihoods, public health, and importantly, human rights. Thanks very much. Thank you, Danielle, for sharing this very comprehensive picture of what is happening in the diversity of responses and reactions and um, to uh, informal food traders in Africa. We'll shift now to Asia. And before I do that, I would like to remind all of our viewers, we are eager to engage with you and to hear from you. Please do submit your questions using the chat box in whatever platform you're using, or submit them through Twitter using the hashtag AskIfPre. We have time and we want to engage with you. So moving continents from Africa to Asia. Our next speaker is Derek Hedy. Derek is Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI. He is part of the Myanmar Agriculture Policy Support Activity, MAPSA, and he will share insights on COVID-19 and food and nutrition security in Myanmar. Derek, over to you. Thanks, Joe. So yes, like every developing country in the world right now, Myanmar is facing at least two crises, a health crisis and an economic crisis, but it could very soon be facing a nutritional crisis. Like Ethiopia, Myanmar only has about 150 confirmed cases from 7,000 tests, but this is already quite a significant strain on an under-resourced health system. It's facing a massive economic crisis, uh, just as Clemens reported for Ethiopia, um, it's going to face a large economic contraction, um, largely from lockdown measures. We're expecting uh, a decline in uh, GDP uh, growth of 6% and a 12.2% decline in household income, which is really significant. Myanmar was nutritionally vulnerable before the crisis. Around 30% of children under five are stunted. It has high rates of wasting, especially seasonally, and it has a large number of internally displaced people as well. The crisis will further damage these vulnerable groups through two main mechanisms. Dietary quality. Myanmar is a major rice producer and will probably never run out of rice, but accessing, affording, and choosing nutritious foods will be a major challenge. And then healthcare. There's the COVID-19 risk, of course, but real concern about non-COVID um, health risk, particularly for maternal and child healthcare, and also infectious diseases, especially in the coming months here. How large will the nutritional crisis be? That depends on policy responses, of course. And IFPRI is using modeling to assess the potential impacts on diets, as well as phone-based surveillance to monitor actual impacts. So what kind of loss in dietary quality can we expect? As I mentioned, income losses of 12.2% are really significant, but about 15% income loss in urban areas is expected. There's lots of uncertainties in this situation, uh, but one thing we can be sure of is that the poor will start to purchase cheaper and cheaper sources of calories. We know this from previous crises. The Indonesian financial crisis in 1998 was quite similar in, this, in, the, in the magnitude of poverty impacts. Uh, Central Java saw a 33% um, reduction in income, household income. And what happened to diets as a result of that? Well, interestingly, rice consumption stayed about the same or even increased in some groups, but egg, meat, fruit, and vegetable consumption declined quite precipitously. What happened to nutrition outcomes? We saw moderate increases in underweight prevalence, but child anemia in central Java rose from 52% to 68%. So that's a huge increase in a very short period of time. 
The COVID-19 nutrition crisis in Myanmar could be worse because of food supply disruptions that have already been mentioned, as well as demand disruptions as consumers veer away from fresh, fresh healthy foods um, to buy more non-perishable foods like rice and pulses. Bart just discussed these problems in Ethiopia. We're seeing the same problems emerging in Myanmar. What are some of the consequences of these shocks to the diet? Uh, we can expect rapid and large and pretty quick increases in micronutrient deficiencies. In the longer term, we'll potentially see increases in the child's stunting, which is closely linked to dietary quality, especially consumption of animal source foods. And in households facing really extreme poverty, we can expect a rise in severe acute malnutrition as well. What about the second mechanism, COVID-19's threat to maternal and child health? COVID-19 is already diverting resources away from core maternal and um, child health activities. Many nutrition staff in Myanmar have already been reassigned to COVID-19 responsibilities. Mothers and young children, of course, need a real continuum of care from antenatal care, neonatal care, postnatal care, vaccinations, and regular prevention and treatment of infectious diseases. All of that is under threat of serious interruption. COVID-19 will also jeopardize regular but life-saving efforts to prevent infectious diseases, and these become more prevalent in the monsoon, which is approaching. So how can we protect vulnerable groups? Policymakers are operating in a really unique state of uncertainty everywhere, but in this kind of fog of war, what can they do? The first is really advocate for nutritional protection. So Myanmar formed two really important committees in response to the crisis, an emergency response committee, mostly dealing with the health, health concerns, and an economic response committee. These committees have proposed some quite comprehensive strategies, but they really need to start thinking about nutrition and anticipating a potential nutritional crisis. And they need to make sure that the nutritional champions and policymakers are really involved in those decision-making processes. Second, social protection. Myanmar had very little infrastructure for social protection in place prior to COVID-19. It's rightly trying to scale up social protection very pragmatically, but it needs to be more ambitious and ask for more help. And these programs need to be nutrition and gender sensitive. It's not enough just to get small amounts of cash or rice to households. We need to really think about their diets. We also need to keep agricultural food systems functioning. We've talked about these problems in Ethiopia and other countries. We have to let farmers farm, traders trade, and sellers sell. We have to do this in a safe way, but they have to keep working. We also need to facilitate food system innovations. Governments, development partners, microfinance institutions, they should search for ways to stimulate innovative food delivery systems. Fifth, we can support enhanced homestead food production to increase access to nutrient-rich foods principally for rural areas, but this can be a possibility in urban areas too. Six, we need to find innovative ways to stimulate demand for nutrient-rich foods. Consumers are trying to buy non-perishable foods, not knowing how long lockdowns will continue. National leaders, mobile phone programs, they can be used to stimulate demand for protective nutrient-rich foods and improve child feeding in particular. Seven, we need to prevent the collapse of basic maternal and child healthcare services. Again, focus on supply, but also need to stimulate demand to make sure that mothers especially are still encouraged to go and access these services. Eight, we need to invest in WASH urgently. This is a win-win because it helps prevent COVID, but it's also very important for preventing the infectious diseases uh, that tend to hit countries like Myanmar quite seasonally. Nine, we need to ramp up community-based support for, um, and management of acute malnutrition and really make sure there's also an adequate supply of nutritious products. And finally, we need to set up food and nutrition security surveillance systems. These will help policymakers identify the scope and scale of the crisis and respond appropriately. 
Derek, thank you very much. Thank you for sharing the insights from Myanmar as well as the action items, which I'm sure are also applicable in different ways to different countries. So thank you for that. So Derek had mentioned scaling up social protection. Our last speaker is Shalini Roy. Shalini is a research fellow at IFPRI and she will share insights from work that she and her colleagues have done on COVID-19 and gender sensitive social protection. So Shalini, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Rajul. So the whole world is reeling right now from the COVID-19 crisis. Um, but experts believe that women in low and middle income countries are being particularly impacted. They're likely being hurt more economically due to their less secure and lower paid work. Their care burdens are growing disproportionately. Risks related to maternal and reproductive health are increasing and the risk of gender based violence is increasing. Now, in terms of the response to COVID-19, the World Bank is estimating that as of last week, 151 countries have planned or undertaken 684 social protection measures. So clearly, as you also heard before, many governments around the world are turning to social protection to try to mitigate the crisis. Now, understandably, the focus of these efforts has been the urgent effort to save lives, provide critical economic support, and gender considerations have not been at the forefront. We know, however, that if gender is not accounted for in the design of social protection, it can actually reinforce gender inequalities, which, as mentioned, we expect the COVID crisis is already exacerbating. At the same time, um, evidence tells us that there are relatively straightforward ways to adopt social protection programming to make it more gender equitable. And this is without compromising and while even advancing its objectives. So in a recent brief and blog post written by several colleagues and myself, we compile evidence-based recommendations across five areas on how to make the social protection response to COVID-19 more gender sensitive. And today I'll highlight a few examples of these. Next slide, please. So first we look at what type of assistance should be provided and how. And here we note that currently in low and middle income countries, about 70% of the social protection response is social assistance transfers, mostly cash transfers. And many government responses are building on their existing transfer programs. So here we recommend relaxing whatever conditions are currently in place for receiving transfers like health, uh, work, um, health, schooling, and so on. This reduces spread of the virus, but it also benefits women for whom fulfilling conditionalities tends to be the most burdensome. In terms of the type of assistance to provide, as mentioned, cash is mainly being provided and that is recommended, um, preferably via e-payments if possible. Cash improves household economic security, emotional well-being of household members, which benefits everyone in the household, but it can also contribute to reductions in intimate partner violence. Um, in the many contexts where it's challenging to purchase items from the markets, have you heard, um, we also recommend additional in-kind benefits, such as food or soap, um, if possible, to provide them safely. So this includes contexts where mobility is restricted, where markets are limited, where food prices are spiking, supply chains are closing. While households as a whole, again, are likely to be helped by in-kind benefits, they may be particularly important for women who are often the first to reduce consumption in times of scarcity and are also perhaps the ones to be out shopping and so facing potential exposure. Next slide, please. So our second topic is who should be targeted. And here we recommend providing geographically targeted universal benefits, which both allows a faster response than something more complicated and is less likely to miss vulnerable people, including women. 
Within households, we believe the evidence supports considering women as the named recipient with indications that this may be better for women's empowerment and at least as good for household well-being. We also see little evidence of harm to women from male backlash when women are targeted. That said, we recognize that household tensions may be unusually high during the COVID crisis and we want to do no harm. So in settings where it was previously deemed infeasible to target women, we don't recommend starting to during the crisis, but we do suggest other tweaks in design to increase gender equity even if men are primarily targeted. For example, authorizing multiple household members to make transactions, making sure information about the transfers reaches both men and women, um, and putting out messaging that benefits are for the entire family. Next slide, please. So the third topic we look at is how much assistance should be provided and when. Um, and in general, we find no evidence of adverse impacts from large transfers to women. So we recommend quick, lumpy, large transfers covering the duration of the COVID economic crisis while avoiding frequent payment distributions that can pose health risks. The fourth topic we look at is what other programming or services should be linked to social protection. Given that social protection um, reaches so many vulnerable people, it can be a useful platform to build on. And since there are so many needs that are heightened during the crisis, it's useful to consider linking at least light touch informational components or referrals to available services from this platform. So priority areas we see related to gender include referrals to support services for gender-based violence, for both men's and women's mental health, maternal uh, and reproductive health, um, and information on food and nutrition. So tying back to what Derek was saying, ways to access or grow nutritious foods, um, even when markets and supply chains are down. Next slide, please. So the last area we look at is how the benefits and information should be delivered. And here we highlight that mobile platforms are very promising, but gender dimensions should still be carefully considered. So delivering cash by e-payments may increase financial inclusion among women, but that's only if they have access to cell phones. And in some settings, women are less likely than men to have access to cell phones. So context is important. In terms of delivering information through um, mobile phones, including through text messages, um, it's worth noting that in addition to having lower access to phones, women also have lower literacy, um, lower ability to pay for services, and multiple constraints on their time. So for information delivery, mobile platforms should be combined with other complementary platforms like internet, television, and radio. We also note that women's groups can be leveraged both as networks to deliver communications um, and to deliver essential services with social distancing. So this is in fact happening in some settings. So um, to close, uh, COVID-19 we recognize is likely to worsen gender disparities, but we believe the social protection response to the crisis presents an opportunity to improve gender equity. And we hope that this lays the groundwork for more gender sensitive social protection systems in low and middle income countries, both during the crisis and beyond. Thank you. Thank you, Shalini. And a big thank you to all our speakers, Yo, uh, Clemens, Bart, Danielle, Derek, and Shalini for sharing experiences from different parts of the world and for different groups and for different response mechanisms. We move now to the Q&A portion of the program. And this is an opportunity to hear from as many of the viewers as possible, your questions and uh, uh, concerns directed to individual speakers or to a group. Please uh, submit your questions, uh, typing them in the chat box or uh, on Twitter using the hashtag AskIFPRI. Please be brief and feel free to share your name and institution if you wish. I will read one question at a time and I will direct that to the relevant speaker to respond. 
please note that in some instances we will consolidate the questions or we will shorten the questions as time permits. So uh, let me begin with the questions. And the first question I'd like to direct to Yo as well as to Derek. So give your heads up. This question is from Melanie Sison, who is a journalist with SciDave in the Philippines. The question is, should COVID-19 persist in the coming months, what mechanisms have been established or what existing frameworks have been modified to adapt or respond to that kind of future, especially with respect to Southeast Asia region? So I turn to you for any global remark he wishes to make and then to Derek for Southeast Asia. Leo, over to you first. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, this is obviously a very important point, a very <clears throat> question. You know, I think that, and that's why uh, what we do, I think is important, is that we don't know very well what is going on the ground in many countries. And what we hear from ad hoc stories, also I think from the story that Danielle told and Bart, et cetera, is that there's a huge variation, a huge variety of things going on, both on the public sector side, with governments trying to come up with responses in different ways, but also from the private sector uh, side. So we've heard uh, basically Danielle's stories of these different merchants trying to deal with it, but we also hear from large multinational groups, sometimes big food companies trying to deal with that. And I think we are now having to think of going from crisis management to this becoming the new normal and see how some of these innovations there can be established and can be learning from best practices and spread from one country where they work, maybe to other countries. Thank you. Thank you, Yo. Derek, would you like to reflect on Southeast Asia? Yeah, Yo makes some very valid points. I think a major challenge in many Southeast Asian countries is that they have to flatten the curve for a very protracted period. So that means some sort of lockdown, physical distancing, et cetera, for quite a protracted period. So as Yo said, uh, these countries are gonna have to find a new norm that gets the right balance between enough economic activity and also prevention of COVID. There's a lot to be done on cross-country learning. And another problem I think we face at the moment is every country is just trying scrambling to deal with its own problems. And they also need to start talking to each other, make sure trade routes are working, um, make sure they're coordinating on movement of workers and all sorts of other international issues. And I suspect not enough of that is happening yet, but hopefully it will come soon. Thank you, Derek. Um, I'll continue with the trade theme. Uh, and this question I will direct also to you, to Clemens and uh, to Bart and Derek, if they wish to come in. This question is from Ginga Tamura, journalist from Japan, NHK Public Television. As many export countries of wheat or rice put export ban, such as Russia and Vietnam, I would like to know what kind of impact it could bring to your countries, i.e. the impact of export bans. Uh, you from an overall global perspective, if you wish to comment, and then I will ask Clemens from Egypt and Bart from Ethiopia. Yo, over to you. Thank you. Um, the, the impact on the markets is there, but it seems to differ quite a bit between the wheat market or the grain market, the wheat market, and the rice market. It seems to be that because the, um, the export constraints which have been imposed are basically affecting a larger share of the rice market globally than it is the case for the wheat market. And so rice prices have started increasing quite significantly, while the impact on the wheat market seems to be less. We actually have a blog coming out on exactly this topic later this week, okay, with uh, model estimates of how these different uh, 
trade restrictions are affecting uh, rice prices and wheat prices globally. Thank you. Thank you, you. Let me come to Clemens. Obviously, Egypt is the largest wheat importer in the world, and as many other countries, it has learned its lessons during the last global food crisis in terms of stocking up wheat and other staple crops. So it seems that there are four months of, of consumption in storage, and the wheat harvest is coming up just in a week or two. So we don't see, um, as of now, any major shortages of wheat over here. Thank you. Thank you, Clemens. And now, Bart, did you wish to make any comment? Yeah, so for Ethiopia, they are a big importer of wheat that is often used in the social safety net program and for food aid. Uh, I haven't heard that there have been problems yet. A little bit confirming what you is saying in the sweet markets, maybe we haven't seen that big of an issue yet. Uh, Ethiopia imports a little bit of rice, uh, but it's not that important as, as wheat. Okay. Thank you very much, Bart. Let me direct the next question to Danielle. Danielle, this question is from Aman with Folu. We've seen, we have seen diversity in country-level responses with some overlap. What type of communication and engagement has been effective at the regional and local level by governments to interact with food supply chain actors and with the general public and government program recipients on food access and supply? Essentially, what type of communication and engagement at regional and local levels? Danielle, over to you. Okay, thanks, Rajul. Um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, and there are certainly lots of different forms of communication. Um, a key one has been with uh, actors who have a lot of trust and legitimacy with traders. So for example, market cooperatives, uh, market queens in West Africa are quite key. So uh, local authorities, mayors working with these actors to figure out where, uh, where it makes most sense to set up uh, poly tanks, where it makes uh, what days make most sense to close down the markets based on uh, foot traffic. Um, so that's been a key one. And then working with traditional religious authorities um, to sensitize them and to pass on to community members messages about hand washing, sanita sanitation, the importance of social distancing has been quite key. And we've seen um, a repeat, particularly in West Africa, of what we saw during the Ebola crisis there, where a lot of um, street artists, graffiti artists, actually uh, using artwork around cities to uh, enhance these messages about social distancing, et cetera. Thank you, Danielle. The uh, next question I will take is from Peter Matlin, and I will direct this also to both uh, Clemens and Bart. Peter, it's good to hear from you. His question is, what information do we have from African countries on how COVID is impacting the processing and modern retail supermarket sector? Clemens first and then Bart. So this is a good question and there's a lot of, but more anecdotal evidence. So here in Egypt, we hear that the, the, the local food processing um, activities are actually increasing um, and that may be a reaction to increased demand and a kind of a, a import substitution um, effect. Um, how sustainable and how long this will be is a big question but obviously if we want to think about opportunity this is a, is a good start and if this trend could continue that the local food processing takes up 
some of the uh, import share in the future, that could be a, a very good uh, opportunity for, for local development. Thank you, Clemens. Bart, any uh, insights from you? Yeah, in, in contrast with a number of other countries, the supermarket sector is not that much developed yet in, uh, in Ethiopia. The processes also are mostly small-scale processes, though they, they don't have the possibility to store for a long time or, or you know, they might be more active here, but, but uh, I'm, I'm not seeing more activity from their side as, as you would see in other countries. Thank you, Bart. Derek, I'd like to direct the next question to you. And this is from Prime Sarmiento, the Hong Kong correspondent for China Daily in Hong Kong. The comment and question is as follows. Most Southeast Asian countries have imposed a partial temporary lockdown. This, however, disrupted the food supply chain. Question is, is this the time now for import-dependent countries like Brunei, Singapore, and the Philippines to rethink their food security policies? Is it also possible to promote urban gardening in busy cities like Singapore or Bangkok? I know, Derek, this question is broader beyond Myanmar, but feel free to reflect from the Myanmar perspective or from the Southeast Asia perspective. Over to you, Derek. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it also emphasizes the point, as I said before, that um, you know, many countries in Southeast Asia are sort of in this together. And yes, they need to, um, you know, to some extent reevaluate their strategies, but they also need to work with their trade partners to make sure that trade channels just stay open. Um, you know, that's, that's really critical. I think there's enough food in the world to feed everybody. We know that we've done assessments of global food supply this year. It's about keeping the trade channels open to make sure that uh, import dependent countries have access. Thank you, Derek. Um, I'd like to direct the next question to Shalini. Shalini's question has come from Marielle Karsenberg with the Food and Business Knowledge Platform in the Netherlands. What can social protection measures contribute to encourage nutritious diets for rural and urban people to prevent all forms of malnutrition? I'll direct it to you, Shalini, and then if uh, Derek also wishes to come in after that, I'll take him too. Shalini, over to you. Thanks for the question. So that's a great point. Um, one of the um, one of the main complementary programming um, options that we feel is very important is, in fact, trying to promote nutritious diets um, through the crisis. So we think that, in part, social protection itself can help promote nutritious diets, as Derek has mentioned. As um, we know that, as households get poorer, they tend to go for cheaper calories. Um, and so just by providing cash, we've also seen in many studies that households tend to consume more um, you know, meat, fish, eggs, more fruits and vegetables, and so on. Um, at the same time, some sort of complementary messaging in terms of um, ways to access these types of foods, to grow them, um, can be very useful, possibly through mobile platforms with messages, um, possibly through radio, television, internet, and so on. Um, in terms of kind of the contextual differences, I think that would kind of have to be uh, you know, tailored to the specific, the specific recommendations I think would need to be tailored to the context. Thank you, Shalini. Derek, did you also wish to add anything? 
Uh, no, Shalini made good points. Only that, you know, this is a, a systemic problem, right? So we we're, we can give cash to people, but if markets aren't functioning properly and there's, you know, there's not a market there for fruits or vegetables or their prices are going up, uh, it's going to have limited impacts. So policymakers really need to think in a very systemic way, um, not only about, you know, the available income, but also the supply and also prompting people, as Shalini said, through phone messaging or other means, um, to try and re-encourage them to buy those perishable nutrient-dense foods. Thank you, Derek. We have a question come comment from our colleague, John Conrad. And John, we miss you at our in-person events. Uh, John is saying markets is a huge issue for our community partners. Are you putting these findings on the web page I could refer folks to? Good advocacy data. Yes, John, all of the work of IFPRI is on our website. Uh, there is a special page set up ifpre.org coronavirus. Um, just go to ifpre.org and search for coronavirus and you'll find the web page with all the key resources and analysis we have uh, across IFPRI. So the next question I would like to direct to Bart and that is coming in from Agnese Bocalon, sustainable development practitioner from Italy. Bart, the question is, does increase in wages lead to riskier behavior that may accelerate the spread of COVID-19? Back to you, Bart. Yeah, that might be that might well be the case, right? So obviously, uh, these wages in these uh, rural areas, in these vegetable producing areas, quickly going up. Uh, so yeah, that will attract all kind of uh, behavior, possibly that might lead to further spread of the COVID nineteen. Yeah, that's why these information campaigns are, are extremely important on what people have to do to avoid it. Yes. That's possible. We have no information on it, but I wouldn't be surprised that that's the case. Yes. Thank you, Bart. The next question I will direct to you, Derek, and this is coming from Ruben Echeverria. Ruben, also lovely to hear from you. Ruben's question is, Derek, do you see digital egg applications via phones used to promote local nutritious food linking smallholder production with local consumers? Derek, over to you. Um, yeah, I think we need a whole range of innovations um, involving technology if we are indeed going to be in some sort of protracted state of semi-lockdown. Um, one, you know, in, in, in Myanmar, for example, I mean, people use mobile phones very richly. Facebook is huge and people are adapting in the, some of the more sort of advanced, sophisticated um, urban retail markets. We're not yet sure about the poor. We also need solutions for the poor both in the sense of being able to access markets, but also the relatively poor informal traders that um, Danielle talked about. Um, I think we need, you know, the, there's a uh, internet technology and um, is going to be a part of a wide range of solutions to the COVID crisis. And I think governments need to think about a sort of technological strategy um, for helping the food system and other systems. Thank you, Derek. The next question is, um, I will direct it to both um, uh, uh, Clemens and to Bart. This is coming from Mogomotsi Magome, who is a, a reporter with the Associated Press in Johannesburg. And the question is, some African countries are easing their lockdowns. May this have a positive impact on food production and distribution without increasing rates of infection? Clemens? Well, I guess that's the, the $1 million question. No? How do we get out of the lockdown again? 
And obviously there are trade-offs, but uh, I think what we see throughout the world is that a complete lockdown is just simply not sustainable. A lot of people suffer from it. So there is no other way than to go into an easing modus, um, hopefully soon. And I mean, there is a fine line to walk and there are probably different ways to do this. So as has been mentioned before, I think the cross-country learning here is critical. Um, no one has um, the perfect solution, but we all learn um, as we go. Thank you very much. Bart, did you also wish to comment on that? Yes, I can do so. Yeah, obviously uh, during a lockdown, as, as has been written by a number of people, is obviously much more complicated, even much, it's complicated in Western countries, but it's even more complicated in, in African countries because a lot of people depend on these daily wages. Uh, and so, yeah, so the sooner we can uh, uh, ease that lockdown, the better obviously for the, the food system uh, and to keep, make sure that people have uh, food here. Yeah. But yes, you don't want to have the infections uh, going quickly. Okay, thank you, Bart. Uh, Daniel, I'll direct the next question to you. This is from Lillian in Kenya, a public health nutritionist. Question is, do you see the issues with informal food traders in Africa impacting household food security for the urban poor yet? Daniel, over to you. Yeah, thank you. Um, Again, we, this is a diversity in responses. Um, I mean, in some cases, right before uh, some of the major lockdowns, particularly in Ghana, for example, um, traders reported a boom in business um, and, and increased their prices up to fivefold for certain food commodities uh, because they knew there was panic buying right before um, uh, schools and, and other uh, things were shut down. So in that case, um, there was a huge increase in food prices. Now we're seeing um, a lot of traders lamenting the decrease in food prices because of course there's not as much uh, traffic because of the, the lockdowns. Um, so in terms of prices, um, that's, that's one mechanism. Um, but the other one is of course the access issue is very problematic, um, particularly because uh, even though markets have been allowed to operate in many of the countries and cities I mentioned, um, street hawkers uh, and street vendors have been removed. Um, and they are much more able to, to access, uh, you know, neighborhoods, slum neighborhoods um, that may be away from, located away from central markets. So uh, as my other colleagues have said, I'm sure um, there, are, there are key impacts that we need to trace and it will be quite uh, heterogeneous, uh, just even within cities, uh, depending on their built environment. Thank you, Danielle. This next question is for Derek or Bart or Derek, and this is coming from our colleague Tewadaj Morgis with the International Monetary Fund IMF. Tewadaj, lovely that you're joining us here. The question is, what can we expect the equilibrium effect to be on high value commodity prices, vegetables, etc., to be from the two opposite forces, demand side, income losses lead people to substitute cheaper instead of more calorie more expensive calories, so downward pressure on vegetable prices. And on the supply side, high value commodity production is more labor intensive than staple production and labor shortages due to illness and movement restrictions for migrant labor will lead to upward prices on vegetable prices. So what can we expect the equilibrium effect to be on these high value commodity prices? 
part. And Derek, do you wish to take that part first? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, Devozaj is uh, an economist too, <laughs> so he could uh, actually solve it for us. Yeah, that's indeed these are the two forces that are going to drive this new, that new equilibrium. And so let's see how that goes. That will depend a little bit from country to country setting also, I believe. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's a good question, Derek. Any uh, insights on your side? None really, except that it's a you know dynamic question. So in the short run, um, yes, there's been a lot of interruptions, and I think people have been trying to reduce the frequency which they do their shopping. So they're, you know, if you're only going to the shops every two weeks, inevitably you're, you're going to be buying less uh, perishable fruits and vegetables and maybe animal source foods too. Um, I think with you know a lot of countries will you know transition to a sort of semi-lockdown and hopefully get these markets um, working again. And, you know, maybe prices will sort of return to normal. Um, but who knows? And I think there'll be a lot of country variation in how this is managed. Thank you, Derek. I foresee some offline exchange with Tewadaj after this event. So let me uh, um, come to Shalini. Shalini, let me ask uh, the following question. Uh, you, you mentioned um, that cash transfers can reduce intimate partner violence. How does this occur and is it only if women are the recipients? Shalini, over to you. Thanks for the question. So that's correct that um, a recent review shows that of the rigorous studies that have been done looking at the effects of cash on intimate partner violence, over 70% show that cash reduces intimate partner violence and the rest mostly show no effect. So cash does reduce intimate partner violence on average. Um, in terms of whether it needs to be targeted to the woman or the man, we actually have evidence that cash transfers to women reduce intimate partner violence, and we have evidence of cash transfers to men reducing intimate partner violence. There are a few kind of head-to-head -head comparisons showing whether one, um, whether transfers to men are kind of more effective or less effective than transfers to women, but both can. In terms of how the effects occur, um, you can kind of look more into this in our blog or brief, but very briefly, um, the same review identifies three kind of key mechanisms. So first, um, cash transfers improve uh, economic security in the household and emotional well-being of the household members, um, including reducing male stress, which reduces male perpetration of violence. The second is that the, the cash transfers reduces kind of daily tightness of budgets, which reduces kind of daily disputes over purchases, which leads to less violence. And the third kind of does rely on targeting women. So if women get the transfers and are able to control them, that can increase their bargaining power within the household to assert that they're not going to accept violence. So those three mechanisms we believe are responsible. Thank you. Thank you, Shalini. Uh, the next two questions are very connected, and I would like to direct them to Bart, and if uh, Clemens also wishes to come in. Uh, question number one is from Edson Mziev with the African Development Bank, and Edson, lovely to also hear from you. The Horn of Africa is experiencing a massive locust inv invasion, resulting in a double locust COVID disaster. Any specific policy responses for governments and development partners? And the second question is from Swain Haile in the UK. Could any geopolitical factors or shipment logistic issues in the Horn of, Horn of Africa potentially impair food security in Ethiopia and Yemen in the coming days? So the connected questions and Bart, over to you first. 
Yes, the locust uh, invasion is a big issue in the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia as well. Uh, luckily, most of that invasion, well, luckily, it's, it's happening always in not the areas where most of the cereals are being grown in Ethiopia. It's not, a, it's not a present in the highlands of Ethiopia, it's mostly in the lowlands of Ethiopia. So it's not jeopardizing the big uh, production belts of cereals in, in, in the country. So that, that's the good thing. But obviously the, this has to be addressed and there are quite some activities happening there to, to try to reduce the spread of, of locusts in, in the Horn of Africa. It should stay as a priority, especially because a lot of poor people are living in these uh, areas. Then on the logistical issues for, for uh, uh, food and, and fertilizer coming into the country, uh, that's obviously a big thing. Ethiopia imports a lot of fertilizer uh, every year. So I, I just read that they, uh, they they use, they are, they bought for this year 1.4 million tons of fertilizer. Luckily, 900,000 tons is already in the country and they're waiting for the rest to come in. Now, the, the port of Djibouti has until now has mm -hmm. been working okay. They have a high number of COVID-19 cases. So uh, the, the measures taken there to allow people in or out are pretty strict. And what we see happening is also that trucks that have to go from Ethiopia to Djibouti that transport coffee, for example, that have to go over the border, they are charging uh, very high prices now. These prices, these transport costs have gone up by, by 70%, 7-0. So that's a big issue. And I, I expect on the import side, the same thing is happening. Thank you, Bart. Clement, did you also wish to respond? Well, maybe just to add, Bart talked about the production side and the market. We have some previous evidence from Somalia and other places that if the markets are working, cash transfers can be a very effective short-term measure. Um, but obviously that depends on the availability of food. But uh, if there is food available on the market, cash transfer could provide a potentially quick and effective relief to the situation. Thank you, Clemens. So our next question is from Martin Fowler with USAID Uganda. And I'll direct it to also to Clemens, uh, Bart and Derek. How easy are you finding it to get some of these important findings put in a language that can be understood by national decision makers and transmitted to them? And I address it to our three colleagues who are working right there in key countries. And uh, how, how easy are you finding it uh, to be picked up by our national decision makers, Clemens, then Bart, and then Derek. So a lot of that has to do with the trust that uh, local policymakers and the decision makers have. And obviously, if like IFPRI, you're having an offices and local presence for many years, there is a well-established communication channels through which, especially in times of crisis, um, such advice and collaboration can be quite effective. In general, um, what we find, I think that's true for any country, it's always good to not only have a long-standing relationship, but also work with technical people so that we don't have to necessarily call up the minister herself or himself every single time, but the indirect channel of through his advisors and through um, local staff um, is, is quite often more effective. And we do see that happening. 
Thank you, Clemens. Uh, Bart, from your experiences in Ethiopia? Yeah, I can say that we are working very closely at, at this moment with the Development and Planning Commission. That is obviously very important in this whole process. So we're trying to do projections with them uh, to see what the impacts are on, on the economy as a whole and how the poor will be affected. Uh, then obviously we, we are in a big way involved in the evaluation of the productive safety net program in Ethiopia for the last uh, more than 10 years and so there is a discussion now on what has to happen with that uh, PSMP program, uh, what will happen in the next year and so we are going to start up some phone interviews and see what's currently going on with that uh, project to help the uh, decision making. Okay, so yeah, we are in close contact with these uh, decision makers. Thank you, Bart and Derek from Myanmar. So I'm relatively new in Myanmar, but yeah, I've been um, impressed actually that the government has been um, very receptive to receiving advice on these issues. Um, we principally work with the Ministry of Agriculture, Livestock and, and Irrigation, but the Ministry of Commerce also plays a very important role in managing food markets and, 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 and trade. Um, and you know, several of our policy briefs um, have clearly reached senior decision makers um, and been taken on board. I mean, sort of one example, you know, we raised the issue that the economic response um, committee did not have much engagement with Mawali, and you know, we sort of raised this and said, you know, there will be a lot of issues in agriculture, um, and you know, they they were very responsive to this and said, yeah, we'll we'll bring agriculture on board and start that discussion. Um, another challenge, I think, but one that um, you know, we're working hard on is also trying to improve coordination among development partners because everybody's operating in a state of some, you know, some amount of chaos and uncertainty um, and people are often moving in parallel. So sort of getting the coordination among different uh, development partners is, is more important than ever, I'd say. Thank you very much, Derek. You, I'd like to direct the next question to you. Uh, and this question is from Haji Msangi with Sokoine University in Tanzania. Question is, Oil, the fuel sector, is one of the seriously affected where there has been a significant drop in oil and fuel prices. How would that affect the food supply and value chain, especially in developing countries? Yo, over to you. Well, the, the, one of the most obvious links is that it is not a factor driving up food prices as it was in the 2007-2008 crisis where increasing oil prices really played a big role by pulling up food prices, et cetera. So that's an important element now. So it's basically not the pressure there. On the other hand, I mean, the, there are a couple of developing countries, for example, Nigeria, whose revenue and, and particularly tax revenue is really importantly depending on oil exports. And so there, um, these countries are really suffering from a much bigger economic recession because of the decline in oil prices. Other countries which have to import oil, they benefit. So again, even within Africa, for example, it's a very heterogeneous effect from that perspective. Thank you, Yo. I know we are running out of time, so let me take the last two questions. I will direct the first one to Danielle and thereafter to Shalini. Danielle, the question is, besides the public sector, can you discuss any interventions that the private sector or civil society are pursuing to help informal food traders? Danielle, over to you. Okay, thanks. Um, yes, yeah, so there are a number of initiatives that both the private and civil society have taken. 
Um, for example, Twiga Foods um, in Kenya has been working with a lot of its distributors and retailers, just making sure that they have the necessary personal protective equipment, including um, in the market, so ensuring there's enough hand sanitizers and masks. Um, civil society groups have been key. South Africa um, is a major, uh, major area where there's been influence um, and associations supporting informal sector workers. Um, advocated on behalf of informal traders in Durban um, in a place called Warwick Junction, which is an agglomeration of about nine different markets. Um, and informal food traders initially were not seen as essential services in South Africa. And this group lobbied for them, made sure especially these traders in Warwick Junction um, were aware of the different health, social distancing mechanisms, including how to deal with cash, um, how to clean cash when it's been given to you um, by your consumers. So yes, we're seeing a lot of innovation outside the public sector as well. Thank you, Danielle. Next question is for Shalini. And Shalini, this comes from Leah Marie Liu. Question is, what recommendations do you have for political contexts where cash transfers and even voucher programs are not favored or allowed by governments? Thanks for the question. Um, so I think the kind of political economy of social protection more broadly is, you know, it's a broader question and a broader debate um, that I think is becoming more compelling during COVID because the kind of need for social protection is becoming so much more urgent. Um, in terms of specifically the gender angle, we, we believe that food transfers can actually be quite helpful as well and kind transfers. There's actually been studies showing that you know, when markets are functional, um, food transfers can do about as well as cash transfers or vouchers in terms of improving food security because that basically frees up um, resources for households to spend on other foods even that aren't provided in the transfer. Um, so I think any, any kind of resources provided to households is better than none. So if the cash and vouchers are not politically feasible, I think the in-kind transfers can go a long way. Thank you, Shalini. We're coming towards the end of our session. We had many, many questions from our colleagues around the world. My apologies that we couldn't take all of you, but please do reach out to us. And let me read some of the names uh, aloud and uh, acknowledge that uh, uh, we heard from you. Um, and uh, these are from Dylan Anderson Barons with SIAT, Steve Hodges with the Uganda Agribusiness Alliance, with Ari Haveler with the University of Florida, Vega Heyu Bogale from South Africa, Sadito from Ghana, Daniel Kialo from the African Agricultural Technology Foundation, Elsa Murano with the Borlaug Institute, Ahmed Badar with the University of Agriculture in Pakistan, Samyutha Kanan from India, Suwadu from IFAD, our colleague Maggie McMillan, lovely Maggie, uh, Prem uh, Prakash Dubey from uh, uh, India, Dashik Kapulu from the UK, Ralph Ruthart, Vivek S uh, from uh, uh, India, Gideon Crossman from Simit, and many others. My apologies that we couldn't take you, but please do interact with us offline. At this moment, I'd like to come to the closing of our event, and I'd like to ask each of our speakers to give a brief 10, 20, 30 second final takeaway messages, and I will go in reverse order and just ask them to follow each other. So this will, we will begin with Shalini, followed by Derek, followed by Danielle, Bart, Clemens, and Dio. So Shalini, over to you. Thank you, Rajwal, and thank you, everyone. 
So we know the COVID crisis has been exposing cracks in our system. And in doing so, it gives us an opportunity to try to fix the system rather than just kind of go back to normal the way things were before COVID. We think that progressing towards more gender sensitive social protection is an important component of preventing vulnerable people from falling through the cracks during and after the crisis and an important step toward a better, more equitable new normal. Thank you. Yeah, so I want to emphasize two things. The first is that, um, you know, countries all over the world now, they're forming sort of response committees to deal with the health emergency, and they're trying to form some sort of economic recovery committee to deal with both the short-term resilience issues and, and the longer-term economic recovery issues. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's really critical to make sure that nutrition has a voice in, in those committees or, or those institutions. Um, because there's a bit of a risk that it's just going to be sidelined, especially when nutrition is housed often in ministries of health and almost all the resources of those ministries of health are being diverted now to COVID-19. They need to keep up their essential maternal and child healthcare services and the sort of a range of other multi-sectoral um, coordination activities that are so critical for nutrition. And then the last thing I would especially urge um, you know, governments and development partners to encourage is surveillance systems. This is a very unusual, unprecedented crisis. Everybody's operating in a state of huge uncertainty and even fairly you know, simple surveillance systems could go a long way to reducing that uncertainty. Thanks. Okay, so even in normal times, we see crackdowns on informal traders are way too common in African cities. And so to respond effectively to public health emergencies such as COVID-19, it's critical for municipal and national governments to really see traders as fundamental partners in the food system, rather than just a nuisance to be tolerated in an ad hoc manner. Thank you. Yeah, I think from my side, it's, it's important to make sure that this health crisis is not going to turn into a food crisis. And so we have to keep our eye on these value chains. And so it's very important to keep them uh, functioning well. And so we see already that there are important changes happening in availability and in prices. Uh, these prices might uh, create issues with incentives. And so that might be a kind of problem for the future and so we need, to, we need to be aware of these things happening and uh, we need to be proactive to avoid uh, further problems. Thank you. Thank you. To summarize, IFPRI's economy-wide modeling team is conducting COVID-19 impact assessments in many countries around the world. And for Egypt, our early results suggest that the country is weathering the global storm relatively well. We estimate that quarterly economic output from April to June may be 18% lower due to COVID-19. Agriculture is the most resilient sector, and we have seen this in other countries too, and urban households are most affected, but incomes of the most vulnerable, the poor, also decline substantially. Cross-country learning of what works will be very critical for the way forward and as we all move out of the lockdown towards a new normal. Thank you. Okay, let me, uh, as last speaker in the row, uh, end by thanking all the speakers. I thought this was a fascinating panel, uh, both the messages and the presentations and also the Q and A's I thought pro provided a lot of information and insights. 
Um, I am encouraging you also to go and look at our website because all the speakers here have written blogs. So these blogs are available with more details. They also sometimes have links to more elaborate papers or studies, which you can find in that way. Our website has been completely renovated, upgraded, because it has now, besides the blogs, also reference to a series of research papers, to our events, uh, virtual activities, and other things. And so in that respect, I would also <coughs> like to announce that we will have a few, um, future panels like this one in the coming weeks coming up. So I would encourage you to stay tuned if you want to learn more about uh, COVID from IFP. With that, Raju, over to you again. Thank you very much. Thank you to the speakers. Thank you to all of you watching us from around the world. Join us for our next event. Details will be announced soon. We look forward to uh, engaging with you and interacting with you. Thank you very much, everyone. Stay well, stay, stay safe. Thank you. Bye.